invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, 6.11. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 6, and we'll be reading through to um, chapter 7 and verse 10. I do remember, obviously, uh, that as we are looking uh, at these verses, there are two references. One is marriage here on earth, and here we have an idealized portrayal of marriage, and I don't have my mic on. Thank you. There are two points of reference, obviously, within the, uh, the book. The first is uh, pointing towards married life here on earth, the covenantal marriage, and obviously the idealized form of that covenantal marriage. Here we have a, uh, a marriage that is on earth as perfect as it can be, and it speaks of the delights of married love and the, uh, the closeness uh, between this couple. But of course, there's also uh, that which our marriages here on earth are supposed to point to, which is, of course, the relationship between the believer and the Lord Jesus Christ. I must warn you that this, uh, this section is, uh, and I will mention this again as we're preaching, probably the raciest section in the entire Bible in terms of uh, what it's talking about. Uh, the analogies are very obvious uh, to uh, physical lovemaking within this section. But, uh, as I will try to explain, that's a, uh, not a bad thing, necessarily. In fact, it's a good thing. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, our gracious Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your whole word. I do pray, Lord, that you would help me this day to open up this word to your people, that you would stifle my natural prudishness, and that you would help me, O Lord, to instead speak of of the wonders of the creation ordinance of marriage that you've given, that although, O Lord, uh, it has been damaged in the fall, it is nonetheless uh, a wonderful gift still given uh, to mankind and something that is supposed to represent the relationship between the bride and the bridegroom. That is Christ and the church, Lord. We thank you that you would help us to understand better how it is we, as uh, members of the Bride of Christ, should be thinking about our Lord and Savior and how we should be seeking uh, to submit to his will and to uh, enjoy the closeness of communion uh, that is beyond our understanding, that communion that comes between Christ and the church and which will be perfected in heaven. Help us to look forward to that day when we will see the glorious consummation of everything that Christ has been doing. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I'm going to be reading, as I said, from Song of Songs, 6.11 through 7.10. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. I went down to the garden, oh, the Shulamite, I went down to the garden of nuts to see the verdure of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was even aware, my soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. The beloved and his friends, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. The Shulamite, what would you see in the Shulamite, as it were, the dance of the two camps? The beloved, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter. The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your navel is a rounded goblet, it lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower, your eyes like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. 
Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. How fair and how pleasant you are, O love with your delights. The statue of yours is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. The Shulamite The wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of sleepers. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I tried searching for it today, but uh, I could not find it again. Uh, A couple of years ago, I read a a Facebook post. It was very poignant. It was actually written by a father out in California. I believe he was in uh, electrical or software engineering. It was was mechanical engineering or electrical engineering of some kind. But in any event, he uh, was a Reformed Baptist, and uh, he and his wife had committed Uh, early on in their marriage to homeschooling their children. And then uh, somewhere along the line, his wife had determined that she was no longer a Christian and she had divorced him and then insisted that their daughter go to a public school. One of the hardest parts of all of this, uh, the court uh, agreed with her incidentally, so she went to the public school. Uh, One of the hardest parts of all of this for him was uh, having her go through um, sex education within a California public school. And he said she would bring home these materials. And here I'm paraphrasing heavily on what he said, but he said it was something like an OSHA safety uh, um, instruction event or something like an IKEA assembly diagram uh, that they were given. He said there was nothing uh, biblical about these things. And he said the worst part was after you had assembled, uh, according to their instructions, your IKEA you know, uh, stuff and you put on your OSHA protective equipment and gone through all of these steps, they would give you advice. He said the injection of perverse sexuality meant that you were supposed to sleep on the desk and write on the bed. It was utterly backwards, utterly unbiblical, and it broke his heart that his daughter was receiving her first introductions to sexual education in this particular format. And brothers and sisters, that should not be the case. It was said that the rabbis did not let young men read Song of Solomon until they were of marriageable age, uh, after they'd had their bar mitzvah at at least 13. But we need to ask the question seriously, where do we want our children to learn about sexuality? Where do we want them to learn about the the physical nature of sex within marriage? Surely it's within the pages of the Bible that we want them to come to that understanding as it's mediated in church and through the family and in our family worship. Surely we want them to understand sexuality, human sexuality between husbands and wives in that covenant setting where not only are they being instructed, but they have the exact of a loving father, a loving mother who have brought them up and are, God willing, instructing them in the way that they should go, not just in their early years, but after they get married, what they should do when they are, uh, and how they should think about forming families and so on. So uh, while, as I said, this is a very racy section, it is important information, and um, I'm going to attempt to exposit it as best I can without turning bright red. so the, uh, earlier on, we had the relationship between the Shulamite and Solomon uh, broken, but now it is restored. You remember he had come and uh, he had called for her and she had said, I've already taken off my shoes and my clothes. I'm not getting out of bed. 
but then her heart was moved for him, and she went searching for him in that dreamlike state. Uh, she was wounded, but eventually their relationship was restored. She went up, uh, she writes now, after he went up to uh, his garden, which is her, there was the uh, restoration of the sexual relationship, she went up to a garden of nuts, which uh, distances it somewhat from the parallel between her. It's, she's not talking about herself, obviously. Here she's, she's talking about literally a, uh, a spring garden, but it's metaphorical as well. Incidentally, the nuts that she's referring to are probably almonds or walnuts, which were very popular amongst Israelites, apparently. But uh, the man went down to his garden to graze. Uh, there's a, there's a, a poetic parallelism here. The, uh, the word graze in the Hebrew is ra'ah, uh, and we would find that in Song of Solomon 6.2, whereas the woman went down to the garden to gaze, which is uh, very similar uh, in its Hebrew construction. And it, um, it's the idea that she goes down to look to the garden once again to see evidences of spring. You remember in chapter 2, there was this, uh, she knew that love was around the corner because everything was budding, everything was blossoming, nature was coming to life. And so she goes down to see, is everything restored? Is our relationship back to normal? And so on. And she finds out that the, the vines have budded, the pomegranates are in bloom, and so on. And so she has seen now that the time of love is restored. The fertility of, uh, of their, their marriage is once again back to normal. Um, unfortunately, following that, uh, the, um, the explanation that she goes down to the, the Garden of Nuts to see the verger and so on, that's very straightforward. There's one of the most difficult passages in the entire uh, or constructions, one of the most confusing constructions in the entire poem to interpret. Before I was even made aware, my soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. That's the best uh, that the translators of the NKJV could do. But um, you, you have to have pity upon them because literally the Hebrew reads, I do not know my soul set me chariots of Aminadib. Um, you know, so the translators are kind of like, oh, I have no. this was probably an idiom at the time, but we're not quite sure what it means. Uh, there was, but the, the, the thrust of it is this. There was some sort of mental disturbance. I was, I was beside myself. And while Aminadib could be translated the chariots of my noble people, it's better uh, probably uh, to say it, uh, to, to follow the Peshitta translation and go with, my soul set me in a chariot with a noble. The idea being that she she has been restored after her uh, the emotional upheaval of the distance between them, her fears that she had lost uh, her love. Um, then she had found him, and it is as though she has been once again placed in the king's royal chariot, and now she is riding alongside him. Everything has been restored. The restoration of uh, their relationship also uh, shows the, the husband's love to her. He, he speaks of, of her beauty instead of, you know, scolding her and saying, you know, you should not have turned me away. I'll forgive you, but uh, I still am uh, harboring resentment at the way you treat me. Instead of that, he once again uh, talks about her beauty, her specialness, her uniqueness, and how she strikes him. Uh, he then, after uh, this, the quarrel is, is over and so on, he describes once again uh, the physical attractiveness of her body in its full glory. And he, he goes this time, instead of before, he, he usually praises from the head down. This time he praises from the legs up. And um, instead of praising seven of her futures as he did before, 
for. Now he goes for 10 to round it all out. He's, he's, uh, he's praising her to the highest. Um, but as I said, the descriptions get very racy. It's undoubtedly the most uh, sensual and sexual descriptions of, of married love in the entire Bible. I, I can't even think of any place in the Bible that comes close to this. Uh, so anyway, let's uh, buckle our seatbelts and, uh, and, and get into, the, uh, uh, into what he's saying. First, in verse 13, of course, there's the desire for her to come back. He wants to gaze upon her once again. He wants to see her. Uh, she is, the, the, uh, the language actually, the, the Hebrew verb hazah, uh, in, in when he says, I want to gaze upon you, it's a word that's usually used actually in the Old Testament to describe prophetic visions. You are a vision to me. You're this God-given message that's been given to me. This is, uh, um, the second part of 13, like 12, is rather difficult to uh, translate as well. Um, the idea, uh, there's, a, there's a word here, um, the dance of the two camps is the way the NKJV puts it. Two camps is actually Menahem. Uh, that was a place, uh, two camps. Um, Jacob was there, for instance. That's where he, uh, he wrestled. But uh, the idea uh, is, this is the dance of the two camps, and the idea is your beauty is hypnotic. You're like the dancers of the dance of the two camps. Apparently, this was a very popular dance at, uh, at this point in time. Dancing was something that the Hebrews did all the time. For instance, we see after they cross over the Red Sea, it's just very natural for Miriam to, uh, to break out dancing. And he says, watching you is like watching the dancers of the two camps. How we gaze upon you is the dance of the two camps. Um, as we go through this description, one of the things that I would put to you, husbands, either present or future, learn to describe your wife to her as eloquently as the beloved describes the Shulamite. Now, I'm not going to say you should be using analogies involving gazelles and heaps of hay um, to describe your wife. I'm not sure she would appreciate that, or describing her teeth like flocks of goats. Most women today would be like, really? Mm. Uh, learn to make analogies that, that um, summon up, though, imagery that she understands that implies how much you love her, how much you appreciate her, how she is a, a vision to you, so to speak. So he starts with her feet, um, and he moves upward this time. He says she's beautiful in sandals. Uh, she has feet like those of a nobleman's daughter. Most people, you remember, at this time in history, they went about barefoot all day. Sandals were actually a luxury, um, and as a result, most people's feet were, were very rough, very work-scarred, but not her. She has feet that are dainty and graceful. That's another point that's being made here. He's talking about, before he talked about how she's like a dancer, uh, how graceful she is in the way that she moves. It's the idea of feet in motion. Then gradually he moves up into the danger zone, uh, mentioning her thighs. Um, I'm going to let Ian do good because there's a, there's a portion here that's uh, it's very interesting, the curves of your thighs. Um, I'm going to let him handle this and so he'll get us past the threshold. And uh, this is a professional theologian speaking, so this is not something from, you know, the internet. Indeed, since the sandals are the only item of clothing mentioned in this poem, the impression is given that other items of apparel may have been entirely dispensed with, i.e. she's naked. The woman's thighs indicate the upper part of her legs. The curves in question here are therefore the buttocks, which are compared to ornaments made by a skilled craftsman. The Hebrew word for craftsman, oman, invites comparison with Proverbs 8.30, where wisdom is the master craftsman, Ammon, at work alongside God in creation, hinting that God himself is ultimately the craftsman whose splendid work the woman represents. So he is literally saying we could paraphrase your butt as a gift from God, but moving on. Uh, 
Now, when he gets to the second, uh, the second verse, your navel is a rounded goblet. Uh, this is the area above the thighs and below the belly that's being spoken of. It's not just the belly button. Um, uh, so it, it's the idea of, of the, the, the gentle area. It is intoxicating. It speaks of, of the pleasures of married love. Uh, it's compared to wine and so on. This is particularly special, so he's describing that area. Then he goes up to her belly, which is a rounded heap of wheat. Um, now, what is wonderful about this is it's exactly the opposite. There's, there's this emphasis throughout in his description on rounding, rounding, rounding. Why? Well, because at this point in time, uh, the, the, the emphasis that we have in our, um, in our society of being skinny didn't exist. That was not um, something that was considered beautiful. It was not all angles and you know, people looking like... Uh, they, I, I, was, I was looking at pictures from um, the, uh, the recent New York fashion show these people look like literally they'd just been liberated from concentration camps uh, and given stuff from gift shops to wear. Um, it's, uh, it was just weird um, that this is what's considered beautiful, but that was not what was considered beautiful at this point in time. Rather, beauty was, was more Rubenesque, uh, which is a reference, of course, to the work of Peter Paul Rubens, the painter, where um, the, the women in his paintings are, they're voluptuous, generally speaking. They are happy. They are well-fed. They are not obese, but they are not, uh, you know, they, they are not, um, they are, let's put it, pleasantly plump. That was the sign of, of beauty back in the ancient Middle East at this point in time. Uh, he also uses the image of wheat, obviously. Uh, that would be the, the healthy, that golden skin tone from the Middle East. Uh, and it's a sign of blessing and fertility. Also, um, the idea of the wheat uh, is also a reference to hair. Let me just say that this was not a time when people waxed and moving on. So the mention of lilies also, again, reads us, uh, reminds us that the man has been feeding among the lilies, and the idea is that this is a, a beautiful and delightful area. And then, of course, we get to the gazelles again, the comparison of breasts to the fawns of gazelle. One of the things that has been pointed out here is her youth. Uh, she is a young woman, um, and that's why it's fawns. Now, unlike the way, the, the, the dirty and awful way that modern pornography deals with, um, uh, with the human body, there's an equal interest with her features above the breast level. It's, it's, it captivates her as well. There's this description of her classical beauty so that the man describes these five elements of her upper body. He describes her neck, her eyes, her nose, her head, and her hair. First, he says, your neck is like an ivory tower. And the, uh, the reference there is probably how she holds her head upright. She's a woman of dignity, a woman of pride. Uh, she's not ashamed. Also, this is very important. Marriage is the one place where a man and a woman can be naked and genuinely unashamed, nothing on their conscience. She is not ashamed under the gaze of her husband. He is delighted in her, and she is, uh, she's happy about that. Her eyes are pools. They are deep. They are reflective. And he mentions uh, this, this actual beauty spot that he speaks of. Everybody would have uh, understood what he meant by pools in Heshbon. These apparently were, were things that were uh, beautiful and reflected. Um, and again, her beauty, and I hope you notice this, is connected again and again with the beauty of the land, flowing with milk and honey, this good gift of God. She is a good gift of God set in the midst of the great gift of God that he's given his covenant people. So there's a, a lesson to be learned there. Now, he says her nose 
is like the Tower of Lebanon. Interesting description there. Commentators fall over themselves saying, we're not sure what it means, but of course he's not saying she's got a big nose. And I answer, why not? Why not say she has a big nose? In many cultures, a large nose was considered distinctive. It was considered noble. The Romans were impressed by the size of Caesar's nose. It was a sign of his, his pride and his prowess and so on. It was, it was something handsome. And I see no reason why he would not be impressed by the size and strength of her nose or how she looked down her nose at the enemies of God's people in Damascus. You've got a great nose, honey, is what he's saying to her. Her head is the crown of her perfection, and uh, her hair is one of this, uh, the most dramatic and dynamic parts of her beauty. Uh, we've got these flowing locks uh, that are described like uh, purple, he, he says. So they're, they're this deep, uh, dark black, which uh, reflects almost purple. And, and there, uh, it's an, a reference to the, uh, the expensive purple dye that was made from murex sail, uh, snails, and it was an incredibly costly uh, process. So only the royalty and the extremely wealthy could afford this dye. And uh, what he's doing is he's saying that her hair is, is captivating. It is, it is something that it doesn't just hang on her head. It is something that entrances him, something that enmeshes him. Uh, it holds a king captive in her tresses. So great hair as well. So what he does is he goes over these things. And he wants her to know, I appreciate every part of you, even your big nose. I love it. I love all of these things. They are wonderful. They are attractive in their own right. But together, they form a harmonious whole. They make you perfect for me. They are, they make you unique. They make you who you are. And so, of course, this is where, of course, his emphasis changes. He goes from simply admiring her, pointing out her perfections. He moves now to uh, how he moves from admiring this beautiful garden with its clusters of dates and so on to this, this frank, this very strong desire to enjoy it. He's, he's not content just to look. He wants to taste. He wants to touch. Uh, and now that they're married and their relationship is restored, there is no reason not to. This is what... It, it, human sexuality is meant for. There's meant to be this, this oneness, this intimacy, this enjoyment, this, this strongest of all relationships outside of the relationship that the believer has with Christ. It's supposed to be a wonderful gift. Uh, and she affirms that she feels the same way. She breaks in with a comment that the wine goes down smoothly. She does want him to enjoy the garden. And then she affirms once again, there's this sign that the relationship has been restored. My beloved is mine and I am his. Uh, and she adds his desire. She adds to this, his desire is for me this time. Now, however, it is a desire that is right, a desire that's good. There had been before a desire that was, was wrong. Uh, her desire for him had, had been in some sense shifted or broken. Um, but before we get into that, just one note, this is, uh, it, it, it's a wonderful, as we've gone through this, I hope you see this portrayal, this wonderful portrayal of the intimacy between a married couple. Uh, this is the, the fullest 
joy that can be experienced here on earth and that God desires us to have it. The problem with, I, I made mention of, you know, the, the, uh, the sex education in school and go out and do these things and experiment with these things and do all these things that you're not supposed to be doing. Uh, you know, misuse the equipment that God has given you. Take it outside of the setting where it's supposed to be enjoyed and so on. It's a counterfeit. And it is nowhere near as enjoyable, as good, as holy, as pleasing, as contenting as it is when it's enjoyed within that covenant relationship. That's what we're being told about the sexual relationship between husbands and wives. It is something that is amazing, and we can make it into something that is tawdry, something where we are ashamed, something where uh, you know, we feel deep guilt And that is awful that we would take this great gift that God has given us and turn it around into something destructive, something that that makes us unhappy instead of pleasing us. It's rather like the gift of wine in one sense. We can take the gift of wine and we can enjoy it and it can gladden our hearts or we can make it into our master and we become its slaves and it gives us an endless series of headaches and missed days of work and just awful experiences again and again. Any good gift of God can be abused, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be used as it was intended. And so therefore, there should be this delight at the idea of married love, something that should be enjoyed to its fullest. There should be no hesitation, no shame, no holding back or anything like that. Well, anyway, I want to make uh, one application moving aside from the physical side. Um, The blessings that they had had, uh, they they went through that period of, of courtship, and then they had consummation, and then there was a break in their relationship after marriage when she became cold and distant. Um, what had happened was uh, her desires had changed. And one of the things that the curse, well, one of the things that the, we find in the Bible, the first time the word desire comes up, does anybody know which book it first comes up in? Desire? Genesis? And in what context? God, it comes up in the context of the curse. Yeah, the Lord says to the woman, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, the word desire, the way that it is used there, doesn't mean um, that, that right uh, sexual desire that the wife should have for the husband. Rather, it's the desire for his position. She will want to rule over him. She will want to be in charge. She will want to be uh, an autonomous creature, not under his control. She will want to be the head in her own life. But then it says, he shall rule over you. And there the rule that's implied is not the the good rule. Rather, it's the tyrannical rule. Um, So both of them are going to head to the wrong area. She's going to attempt to uh, be independent, autonomous, and in charge. And he is going to uh, tyrannize. That's one of the the terrible ways that uh, husbands um, misuse their position. Whenever we are telling our wives, for instance, to do things that the Lord does not tell them to do, uh, then we are acting as tyrants. We are supposed to act as as heads. We're supposed to act as uh, Christ to them, the way it's spelled out, as we've seen in Ephesians chapter 5. So the word desire uh, there is is for his position and it's a repeat of the problem uh, that mankind has with headship generally speaking what i mean is this 
Our first parents are placed in paradise. They are put in the most perfect of circumstances. They are given one another. They are given, uh, they just have to put out their hands to get delicious fruit. The entire area is temperature controlled. There's never a bad day in paradise. And yet they're discontent. They don't want God to rule over them. They believe, unfortunately, the lie of the devil that they shall be as gods if they merely disobey the Lord and change the created order. If we become our own gods, we'll be happier. And so they disobey him. And unfortunately, it leads to great discontentment. We don't want God to rule over us. And since that the fall, we have rebelled against him. We have wanted to be God. And so in our relationship with God, we have problems. And that rebellion translates to all the other headship relationships. We have difficulties not just with our relationship with God, not wanting him to rule over us. In the household, we don't want the husband to rule over us. In the, uh, in the family, husband... Uh, parents and children, the the children do not want the parents to rule over them, and so on. Within civil government, in every single sphere, we don't want the, uh, the government to rule over us. You're not the boss of me. We have terrible troubles with headship ever since the fall. And the answer, therefore, is... The, the way that the restoration occurred, remember this, the poem, the person in the poem who is always wrong is the bride. Why? Because we're the bride. And who's the bridegroom ultimately? It's God. Now, this is the hard part. The answer to their problem was humility, to submission, to a restoration of the right desire so that she would once again desire her husband and go after him, the husband obviously being uh, uh, the the Christ figure within the poem. Uh, And the problem was not going to be was not going to be fixed until she was willing to submit to him, until she was willing to surrender to his headship. Now, he is the best of husbands, obviously. Christ is the perfect husband personified. In this particular relationship, we have an idealized relationship, don't we? He, uh, the, the beloved here, he is perfect as well. He has all the right words. He describes her in exactly the perfect way. He never shows anything other than love and adoration for her. Would that every husband on earth was as good as the idealized beloved here, this, uh, this ideal version of Solomon, the king, uh, within this. It doesn't happen, though. We don't find men here on earth who are perfect in every dimension, and certainly not as perfect as Christ is the head. But just as the solution to our problems in the Christian faith is submitting to the will of Christ, and becoming more and more humble under his rulership. The, problem to, uh, the answer to our problems within the household is more and more representing the relationship between the bride and the bridegroom. The husband recognizing that he needs to act in a Christ-like way, loving his wife in that, that, uh, that adoring and self-denying way, and the wife submitting to his headship within that relationship. There's no other way to build a household that's on the right foundation, just as the Christian will never be on the right foundation if he is in rebellion against God. You will never have a right Christian relationship with your Savior if you are disobeying him and saying, I will not have you to rule over me. If we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and we say, Lord God, I now by your grace have a willing heart and I want to do what you have given me to do, 
At that point in time, we rise to the highest point that we can here on earth underneath his headship. If we submit to his rule, now the harder part is both of us doing in the household as well here on earth as we're representing that relationship between Christ and the church, us remembering our roles. The husband remembering to love and adore his wife, to to treat her as Christ treats the church. And then the wife remembering to respect and love her husband as the bride here on earth is meant to, to do that. Now, as I said, you're never going to find a relationship that's as ideal as the one that we find in the Song of Solomon. But we can get close. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, there is no reason why we should not enjoy the intimacy, the fellowship, all of the things that are spelled out here, here on earth, even though we are not ideal, even though we are not perfect. If we will but humble ourselves, die to self, and do the things that the Lord is asking us to do. That, too, is part of submitting to his rulership. Now, I realize this is very hard for fallen creatures to do, and it's a hard thing to, to speak about in the modern world. But nonetheless, the benefits of doing it are spelled out to us in this poem, this, the, the beautiful communion that exists between this husband and wife. It's not unreachable here on earth. It really is not. It can be ours if we will but strive to form that relationship within our households. And in the same way, we must go beyond that, obviously, and strive to have that relationship with our head, Christ. And it's been my finding that the more we are striving to follow Christ together, the more harmony we will have in our married relationships as well. If we're both striving to to be the bride of Christ within our own home, to build his kingdom, then it comes easier to us to humble ourselves beneath his hand and to love one another as he loves us. I know this is not easy in and of ourselves. The natural man can't do it. The worldling cannot do it. But brothers and sisters, you have something that the worldling doesn't have. You have a new heart and you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. That's the real answer to our marriage problems when we face them. A change of our desires so that they are more in comport with the the desires that God has for us. A desiring one another and our best. A dying to self, remembering that our bodies don't belong to us, but they belong to each other. And a restoration of that, my, uh, my desire is for my love and his love is for me as well. So let us attempt to uh, emulate that as much as we possibly can. And let it be the case that we are able to say of our Lord and Savior Jesus, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Let's turn towards him now. God, our Father, Lord, you give us a beautiful picture of married love with all of its intimacy. And Lord, you show us as husbands how we should admire and adore our wives, how we should say they are God's gift to me in all of their parts. And, O Lord, all together, I pray that you would help us to do that, to love them, to desire them, and to honestly show them that adoration, to speak of them with tenderness, and to uh, personify Christ as best we can in the household. And I pray that wives, O Lord, would, uh, would seek to emulate the bride that they too would uh, adopt a spirit of humility, which we all need, and that they would desire to respect their husband, and that they would desire him as they are desired by him. Oh Lord, may you give us a taste of that, that wonderful married intimacy before we enjoy the far greater communion that comes after we die. 
Oh, Lord, how we long for heaven. If life on earth can be very sweet, we know that life hereafter is sweeter still. And I pray all these